Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We are very excited for our two special guests today. Melissa, we've been wanting to focus on writing for a really long time, and we know that it's really hard to focus on writing without also talking about reading. But our two guests today uh, are really experts in this area, and um, I wish my book is in the other room, but I wish I could hold it up right now in the camera because um, I told them that I wanted them to autograph it for me. <laughs> and Melissa, I know you have your copy. <laughs> yeah, I left my copy of Writing for Understanding at the office this whole time, <gasps> thinking like I'll be back soon, but it's been there. And I always think, I'm like, oh, I need that book. <laughs> I need to just get another copy. <laughs> so now, now it's been at the office since uh, the pandemic? Yeah, almost a year. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I'll mail you one. Well, welcome, uh, Diana Letty and Joey Hawkins. We are very excited to have you. Uh, they are jo- Joanna and uh, Joanna. Wait, what am I saying? Diana and Joey. <laughs> Diana. I was merging your names because your name is officially Joanna. Diana and Joey. <laughs> People uh, typically say our names all in one breath anyway, like it's one word, Diana and Joey, because we've worked together for so many years. <laughs> You're like... Um, when uh, when celebrities date and they have those celebrity names, <laughs> I'm getting tongue tied because I feel like I'm meeting celebrities. Uh, <laughs> kind of like Abbott and Costello. Yeah. That would be a more apt comparison. <laughs> All right, I'll try again. Diana and Joey are here from the Vermont Writing Collaborative. So welcome, um, Diana. Would you kick us off and introduce yourself? Sure. Um, My name is Diana Letty. Um, I have spent most of my career teaching in Vermont, Um, taught for over 25 years, all grade levels, K through five. Um, And most recently, I've been working uh, as a consultant um, to support nonprofits, mostly in developing curriculum that will help all students to learn to write. Love that. And Joey, welcome. Share a little bit about yourself for our listeners. I'm Joey Hawkins. I also have been a public school teacher in Vermont for a very, very, very long time. Um, The bulk of my experience was at uh, middle school, sort of an integrated middle school program, which which we were um, thrilled to be able to sort of engage in so deeply for so many years. Before that, I was a special ed teacher in Minnesota, in northern Minnesota, which really kind of helped inform where we finally ended up with the Vermont Writing Collaborative in the sense of seeing what do you actually do for kids to make them be able to be competent in ways that all kids need to be competent in terms of reading and writing. So I think when we were had the incredible good fortune to have the, the um, flexibility in the school we worked in in Vermont to, um, to bring some of those forces to bear, it all sort of came together in ways that we think were, we learned a tremendous amount. We think that the kids benefited too. The last few years, since I retired from public school teaching, I have also been working in a sort of helping schools, helping some particular school districts, and I'm working with kind of national curriculum. Yeah, so no small feat. You both are pretty busy, I bet. Yep. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, well, we, we're really interested to hear about the history of the Vermont Writing Collaborative because what's really intriguing to me is that 
It's a group of fabulous teachers <laughs> like yourselves. Um, so would you mind sharing the history of the Vermont Writing Collaborative? Like, where did this come from and, and what did it look like? We're really interested. Diana, do you want to start with that? Sure. Um, well, it, we think of the Vermont Writing Collaborative as, as something like a small miracle. Um, and it, it really just happened because there were a group of teachers in the school that we worked in in Vermont. Joey and I were a part of that group, and there are many other wonderful teachers there as well, um, that became really concerned with the fact that most of the students in our school were not learning to write and even more concerned with the fact that we didn't know how to help them do that effectively. Um, at that time, Vermont was one of the early leaders in figuring out how to define effective writing. Um, and we had, we actually had a statewide portfolio um, project um, that was our state assessment. Students in fifth grade and eighth grade actually um, handed in work. We handed in folders of work um, and learned how to score them. And that counted as their statewide proficiency in writing. So, wow. um, and we were sort of involved in, in, in that movement. And what we realized was that um, understanding what makes writing effective, learning how to score writing was crucial and it was foundational. If you don't know what you're looking for, you, you can't figure out instruction to get there. Um, but we didn't know much in terms of instruction and we didn't know how to get kids there. So it left us in this position where we were painfully aware of what our students weren't able to do, painfully aware of what we weren't able to do, um, and we needed, we needed some help. Um, so we turned to our colleagues in our school, um, and we did what I think you'd now call an action research project. We did not have the name for it back then. And um, what we wound up doing was setting up a monthly rotation um, and the whole staff participated. So grades K through eight, small school. So one teacher at each grade. And we got together monthly. Everyone shared what they knew. We chose a particular writing type and everyone shared what they knew. Um, we, you know, learned all together about what would make that writing type effective at different grade levels, what those pieces and benchmarks looked like. Everyone in the room shared whatever they had discovered about effective instruction. Um, and then we all went off for a month and taught in our classrooms. And that teaching resulted in our bringing back student work and we spent the next meeting looking really carefully at that student work and also discussing what we had done in the classroom and trying to figure out our, our mission was really simple. It's, you know, what what worked, what didn't work and what do we need to know now? Um, and that group eventually became the Vermont Writing Collaborative. Um, we started informally sharing um, with other schools around us. And very soon there were people who were um, asking us, you know, can, can you tell us more about that? Can you share your materials? Can you share your ideas? We started going around to some other schools. And, and now really the approach has spread nationally and... Um, I just I think the other thing I'd add to that just in terms of history is that as that was happening as Vermont was developing this kind of ahead of its time portfolio program at the time which and this goes way back to the late to the 90s I think as I recall it was really quite a long time ago 
And there were networks, there were writing networks, which our school was involved in, as were most other schools in Vermont around the state. And Vermont is a pretty small state. So when you have 14 or 17 or whatever it was writing networks, a lot of teachers participate. And some of those teachers were the teachers who ended up becoming part of our Vermont Writing Collaborative with us, who were not in our school, but were asking the same questions about how do you really help kids to write? And one of the things we learned in the, because so much was leaning on assessment in those early days, and it was a very, it was a really good idea to be looking at student work and learning from it. But we began to realize two things. One was that if kids didn't really understand what they were writing about, there was no way that writing was going to be effective. And we, we, we could see that in the writing we were sharing really around the state. And the other thing that we began to realize was that when all of the emphasis was on assessment and none of the emphasis was on instruction, teachers didn't really know what to do with what they were seeing, what they were sensing and what they were actually seeing in the writing. They didn't know what to do about it. So we began, we didn't either, <laughs> but, we, but we began trying things. But once we had identified, it was helpful to identify the problem. So once we had identified the problem, and by this time it was based in our school, but these other schools were involved in it at the same time as well, we could start sharing strategies. This worked, this worked, maybe this would work. And that became a highly collaborative effort, kind of starting in our school, but really more than our school, because, and I, I, I attribute some of that to the fact that Vermont very fortunately had this kind of statewide ethos about sharing between schools. And it was a small enough state that we were able to do it. It's amazing. <laughs> we were very lucky. We were yeah. very lucky. It sounds like uh, the perfect scenario, right? The right place, the right time, the right people. Yeah. It, it's a it once was- in a lifetime, right? It was very serendipitous. Yes. And I just love that, I mean, so often, at least in Baltimore for so long, we separated reading and writing. You know, it was like we had our reading time and then we had our writing time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and and most, then, most people did that, Melissa. And still, that's a real struggle in many places. That issue of reading period, writing period, who's the reading teacher, who's the writing teacher. Still, that's an issue for people that people struggle with. We had the incredible flexibility in in our school and in the state as a whole to say, I'm not sure that's working. Let's try something else. (laughs) You know, what I think is interesting is that I, I feel like a lot of teachers listening or even leaders listening, it's resonating to say like, um, we focus, we want to focus on writing or, you know, we chose to focus on writing. I mean, I've been there. I've been at a school that quote chose to focus on writing. You know, we did a lot of what you shared in terms of knowing, um, like what it means to get students to the final product, but we focused on the assessment and we didn't focus on that instruction piece. And we also didn't focus really on what they were reading in order to give them enough information in order to write about it. So they still lacked the knowledge to be able to articulate and what they understood. And, you know, in hindsight, in hearing you two talk and in reading, uh, writing for understanding, that's really where we went wrong. And it was, it was well-intentioned and, and I think a step in the right direction, um, but it just didn't come full circle like yours did. So I'm really curious, um, like if, what the next thing was after that, like, how did you come to where, um, you know, to find all the pieces to the puzzle, if you will. And how did teachers react to 
students building knowledge on topics in order to be able to write for understanding? And maybe that's a really big, broad question, but um, I'm just really intrigued. <laughs> I, I'll take a stab at that for start, and then Diana, you can jump in. Sure. I would say that um, teach, as soon as we identified it for ourselves and started trying things, that the teachers that we could immediately work with reacted very positively to it because it's, it was so clearly true <laughs> to, sort of, to sort of see that students couldn't, a big piece of what was going wrong for students was that they didn't know what they were talking about. Another big piece was that they didn't know how to structure their writing. So those, those two right. kind of ways in to be thinking about writing were, were, very, um, were very evident, I think, once we, once we could name them. I'll just tell you a little story about that that happened in 2000 and I think it was 2003. And the only reason I remember that is because it was the end of the Iraq war. It was sort of, it was the beginning of the Iraq war. And we, we, were, at, we were at a state portfolio um, assessment. So they, they would rent a, a ski resort in the summer because nobody was skiing in the summer. <laughs> and, um, and have boxes and boxes and boxes, dozens, hundreds of boxes of student work, very neatly categorized and so forth in folders on these tables. And we were in, in teams, we were looking at student work, and the idea was to give teachers feedback on their, on their writing. And we were using the then state rubric, which even still says draft. It had been drafted in 1999, and it was still a draft in 2003. Of course. And we, and we came across a piece of writing, a fifth grade piece of writing called The Longest War. And it was about the Vietnam War, and it was about four paragraphs long. And when you first looked at it, you thought, oh, this is going to be an okay piece of writing. It had what was clearly meant to be an introduction and a couple of body paragraphs and a little conclusion. And those things roughly did what they were supposed to do, like introduce with a thesis statement, give some evidence, give some more evidence, and then sort of reflect, conclude and reflect. But, and so you looked at it and you thought, okay, this piece is gonna be in the reasonable ballpark. But when you read it, you realized it was not in the reasonable ballpark. The structure was, but the student really was wrong on the content. It wasn't just like, and they weren't just trivial wrongs. It was a really a very significant misunderstanding. One of the things that the student said in this, for example, this is clearly very well-intentioned student said was, well, it was a good idea to fight the Vietnam War because, because now they are in one country today. And you thought, wait a minute, I don't think that's true. I don't think, I don't think yeah. South Vietnam is a country anymore. There's really only North Vietnam because North Vietnam won the war. So this wasn't just a trivial, like, I got the wrong date. This was a major, huge misunderstanding that this piece of writing was now sort of codifying for this child. So the power of writing was working, in a sense, against this child. Because once the child had put it into some sort of coherent form, which was what the structure did, the, the meaning was wrong. And there was no way on the rubric to name that. The, the rubric did not name does the child understand what he or she is talking about? Mm -hmm. It was a huge aha for us when we were looking at that piece of writing that the, the people at the table who came to it called me over and said, I don't know what to do with this. I'm sensing something's wrong here, but I don't know how to, I don't know what's how to name it. And we couldn't name it, but by using the rubric that we had, because that, that term was not there. Mm -hmm. Nowhere did the rubric say show solid understanding of what the child is writing about. And that was, that was a very helpful wake up call for us in terms of articulating one of the very important things that needed to happen, the, the fundamentally important thing that needed to happen for a kid to write well about whatever they're writing about, whether it's personal or content writing. The writing is there to, to first to create and then to communicate understanding. And Not a key to, piece, 
Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jess. I was going to say, not to fill in boxes of now I need to have a this, 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 right? right. Yes. Go ahead, Diana. The key realization we came to also very shortly after that is that if we wanted that to happen in our classrooms, we needed to be responsible for ensuring that it did. Um, so for a long time, you know, people have known that writing pieces are better if students know about what, uh, write about what they know. And what we realized is that we could make that happen. We could ensure that students knew what they were writing about. Um, and so that's a really key piece in the writing for understanding approach, that idea of building, consciously building understanding um, before writing. And we also found as we did that more and more that it was a huge equalizer, um, that no longer were we counting on students walking into our classrooms with a huge knowledge base. We were intentionally building that knowledge base. And what we saw happen when we did that was that students who previously really struggled with writing all of a sudden wrote pretty well. Not, not gorgeously, not earth-shatteringly, but quite competently. Clearly. And clearly, and clearly yeah. And it, it was, so it was a huge, a huge aha for us that in order to help our students to write effectively, we needed to very consciously build not only the writing skills and craft, but also the knowledge that was going to be communicated through that writing. And that continued to be true. We weren't only seeing that in our own classroom where we were where we were excited by it and kept and kept teaching to it and finding that it was working. But we saw that even in other classrooms in some of those years we were we went quite often at least some of us did into but in within the whole collaborative I'm talking now about went into other schools. Schools would ask us to come in and do do lessons um often from K through 12 really. And we would find that same thing repeated over and over and over again, that once you really sort of focused on saying, this is what I'm going to want you to write about, this is how I'm going to make sure that you're going to be able to write about it. And a huge piece of that is building the content knowledge in accessible ways so that the kid actually has it. Seeing the results of that repeatedly, repeatedly being what Diana's describing, where the students, you can almost see the kids saying, I get this. I get what I'm doing here. I can tell you actually another little story about that. Um, and this was happened some years later, actually, quite a few years later, with, in an eighth grade with an eighth grader in, in my classroom. And we were doing what we were experimenting with, what we now call gradual release of responsibility, where you start with something that's very, very um, scaffolded. You're almost making it impossible for the child to fail. And then moving to somewhat less scaffolding and ultimately to independence. And there's many ways to do that. And there's no hard and fast rule about the number of tries you need and so forth. But we were experimenting and trying it. And um, this one student got to that final, uh, he was a very needy student. And he, had a, he was out of the classroom most of the time because of that's what his IEP required. But I had asked the, I, the, the um, special ed teacher if it would be okay if he would stay in the classroom for these six or eight weeks that we were doing this project because we really wanted, we felt he would benefit from it and wanted to make sure he didn't miss it. Otherwise he would have been gone during that time. So he was there and he was, he went from this highly scaffolded to with this essay, this um, literary analysis essay from a highly scaffolded one to a somewhat less scaffolded to a pretty independent one um, at the end. And he wrote that pretty independent one, not perfectly and probably not even proficiently, 
but in well into the ballpark. Like when you read it, you thought he knows what he's talking about. He, this essay is clear. The spelling is not great, but we weren't really, that wasn't our focus at that point. Um, this child really knows what he's talking about. And I was thrilled and took it to the special ed teacher and said, look what this child did. And he read it and he said, well, he didn't write that. And I said, well, well what makes you say that? And he said, well, you know, his dad helps him a lot with his writing. He would, he, you know, he would have written that at home and his dad would have helped him. And I said, actually, he didn't have that option. I watched him write this in class. I watched what he did. In fact, what I watched him do was to sit down with the text, the short story that this was going to be writing about, look at the question, get out his model from the earlier piece that we had written that was similarly structured, put it next to him on his desk and say, and then start to write. And he wrote for a long time, an hour, hour and a half, whatever it took to finish that essay. But he had to do it in class and he had to do it independently. And when the teacher, when his very, very well-intentioned special ed teacher saw that and his first response was he couldn't have written that himself. That was a very striking moment for us to realize, oh, look what's possible for kids when you really build in this kind of instruction and look how much we need that for kids like this. We get similar reactions often when we show sample pieces at workshops. Um, teachers will say, well, you know, this student, you know, couldn't have written this because we would we purposely chose pieces done by students who usually struggle with writing. And often it, it's pretty apparent through the spelling and the handwriting, um, you know, that, that that writing does not come easily or naturally for this child. Um, but, you know, teachers will often challenge us um, and say, well, how, how, how could this child know all these big words? And, and the answer is pretty simple. I'd say because we taught them. Um, and, and that's really, really important. You need to teach that vocabulary. You need to teach that knowledge and understanding. And when we give students what they need, um, they can do things that are really quite unexpected and, and pretty amazing at times. Yeah. Melissa, do you have a question? I, I feel like you're... <laughs> well, I don't want to derail us too much, but this your story, Joey, about the student with the Vietnam War essay. Yeah. Um, it really hit me because in, in Baltimore, this is just some data we have, um, over many years, we have about a third of our students who are who from third grade all the way through 11th grade just do not write on the state test. Like they get to that state test, they'll, fill, they'll do the multiple choice for, for everything, but they just leave the writing blank, which breaks my heart. <laughs> we have seen improvements with writing with wit and wisdom in classroom because of all the things that you guys are talking about with the instruction. And I don't want to take us down a rabbit hole of state tests, <laughs> but I think, you know, my thought is like, how do you do that on a test where you don't know what the content's going to be? The students likely don't have the knowledge of whatever it is they're reading about. How do we help students there? Or is it really just like testing is not what it should be? <laughs> I, can tell you, I can tell you another little story <laughs> that might that might sort of address that. I'm not sure if it does, but you listen to it and tell me if it does. Some years after that Vietnam War, many years after that Vietnam War story, and even some years after that eighth grade special education student story, um, we, had, we were doing a state test. And it was, um, the, the, it was the kneecap at that time. And kids who were, who were on an IEP for reading were allowed to have somebody with them to read the, to them during the math portion of the test because they didn't want the, their inability to read um, 
make it impossible to measure what they could do in math. And I happened to have a, st a student. I was just given a student to do that. We had to go to another building because there wasn't enough space in, the, in our school to, for all these kids who needed accommodations. And he was, we were sitting down and I, I said, okay, I can read to you this portion of this, this math portion, these math problems part of the test. And he said, no, 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 you don't need to do that. I said, well, I can because it's because that's on your IEP and it's okay to have that accommodation. So that's why we're doing this together. He says, no, he said, I know what to do. I just read this over and over and over again. And I figure out what all the words and I unpack it and I put it in my own words until I understand what it's saying. And then I can go ahead and do the math. And I said, okay. <laughs> and I watched him do that. And that's exactly what he did. He, and that, and he did that because, and this is where I think the relevance is to your, mm -hmm. to your, worry, Melissa, which is a real, a genuine and real worry. He did that because he had learned from repeated work of how do you tie reading to writing, what to do to help himself with the reading that he didn't understand because mm -hmm. he didn't understand it at first. He was a, he was a struggling reader, but he had also had a lot of successful experiences with rereading and unpacking and paraphrasing in his own words until he did understand what the reading was saying. And then he was able to go ahead and do the math. I'm, I'm guessing that for at least some number of your students, but that's what they're missing. They probably have, they may not have internalized well enough from enough repeated successful, that's key actually, successful experiences, how to help themselves to be able to transfer to that new situation. Yeah, it's a really great point. And the, be, oh, sorry, Diana, go ahead. <laughs> the test needs to needs to provide the information though and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Okay, so this is a test problem. Yeah, <laughs> the test needs to provide some reading information, um, you know, something to read and a way for students to access that um, so that they can get that knowledge. But I think often you do wind up with scores on state tests that are not reflective of what students can do in the classroom in writing. And a huge part of that is that, you know, there isn't an opportunity on the statewide assessment to adequately build that knowledge. And so right. um, students are at a loss. The other thing, though, I think is that kids, for ki by the time kids get to third or fourth grade, if a kid who has really struggled with, with knowledge at all, vocabulary at all, and so forth, that it takes a lot of repeated successful practice and some degree of gradual release that's, that works, that's, that's success, that's, that is successful for the kid, for a kid to be able to sort of manage in an on-demand situation like that, to sort of figure out what to do. Right. That's what I was thinking, that they had, like, they would have to have enough experiences with fluently, repeatedly reading complex texts. Successful experiences. Successful I, I, experiences. I, yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't name that enough. I, I think that one thing that we have, that we have sort of not realized, or at least not named well enough, is to say, it's not just a question of practice. If the practice isn't yielding you successful understanding, that practice isn't necessarily very fruitful. Yeah. So it has to be successful practice. Joey, I think I want to say in our pre-call, you may have said this. I might have just said it in my head when you said something like that. Um, I, I teach fitness classes and I had an instructor say um, or a teacher say, perfect practice makes perfect. And that phrase really stuck with me. And so I think that's what you're talking about, right? Like that successful practice is what gets us to that success. If I'm always doing a, a curl wrong, <laughs> you know, or a squat wrong, I'm doing that squat incorrectly wrong all the way to the end. And, and it's the same with kids 
in that fluent reading space. They're, mm-hmm. if, if they're reading it incorrectly and they're practicing it incorrectly and no one's ever correcting them and, and helping them to get to that success point, then they could practice all they want, but until it's, quote, perfect, if you will. Right. We're not getting them. I'm hoping that you all might be able to share just in a quick snapshot the tenets for writing for understanding and really any research that you turned to, which I believe is knowledge building research, um, which is interesting because it wasn't so much writing research. So I'm curious about the key tenets for writing, under, for, writing uh, for understanding and then the research that you turned to to help guide you through supporting uh, those tenets in your practice. Diana, why don't you start with that, with tenets? Sure. Um, what we wound up with were, we, we think of them as three pillars of writing for understanding. Um, and the first one is backward design. Um, as we were saying, it's really important to know where you're going, both with the writing and with the knowledge building, and to really carefully plan instruction from those ends. Um, so our approach is very, very much tied up with principles of understanding by design um, and, and other backward design principles. So Joey, we sometimes call it the how do I get to Walmart principle. <laughs> <laughs> like you don't just say, gosh, I'm going to go out in the car and hope I get to Walmart. You say, where's Walmart? <laughs> and then you plan backwards from that. <laughs> Exactly. And, and that's that's really crucial. So there's a lot of teacher planning that goes into this and a lot of being able to envision that final goal, both in terms of what that final writing piece will look like and also in terms of, you know, what kind of knowledge needs to be built in order to get there. And then the second tenet, so the first is backward design. The second that we've been talking about is understanding, that there needs to be a lot of time. And, and one of the things that people say all the time when they, they plan a sequence like this is, you know, it looks like we're doing so many things that are not actually writing. And, and that's true because you need to spend a fair amount of time building knowledge and building craft before you write. And that building of understanding looks like kids talking to each other. It looks like kids reading um, complex text. Um, it isn't acting things out. As, act, exactly, acting things out. Younger kids, you know, very actively um, working with knowledge and manipulating, um, you know, their thoughts and talking to others. So, you know, that takes a good chunk of time. And then the third pillar is direct instruction. And that's where things like our structures come in. Um, We use structures, we use models, we use graphic organizers and a bunch of other instructional techniques. Um, So our three pillars are direct instruction, um, understanding, building understanding and backward design. And those are our basic principles. And I, I feel like as you're naming those, you know, I'm envisioning wit and wisdom in my brain and just thinking, wow, if you have high quality curriculum, this is, this is happening for you innately in the materials. And uh, that's, I think, one of the key reasons to really use them as intended and, and with some integrity or with a lot of integrity. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm, I'm envisioning all of these pieces. Um, particularly, I know one of, one of the things that you're most famous for is that painted essay structure. So, um, the, you know, in, in terms of that direct instruction and, and teaching structures, but um, yeah, I, I just want to name for our listeners, like if you have high quality instructional materials, 
these pillars are embedded within. And that's a really key piece for, I mean, a key lever for um, helping teachers understand how to or, or why they should execute with that fidelity, integrity, whatever you want to say. I would also say, Lori, I think it's just, I mean, it's so beneficial for teachers to have something that has done some of this work <laughs> because yeah. in Baltimore, before we had Wit and Wisdom, we were attempting to do some of this. And I think we did a pretty good job with the backward design, like leading up to that final writing task and building up to it. But we didn't even touch the other two. No. <laughs> and we didn't have time or people to really get there. And so, I mean, for asking one teacher to do all that too. Oh my gosh. <laughs> too <laughs> much. Having a curriculum that has a lot of it in there already or most of it in there already is, is amazing for teachers. Feels like a relief. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like they can actually, you know, we, they can actually teach. Um, I know one of our future podcasts that we'll be putting out there, we're talking with uh, the Right to Read Project, and they talk a lot. One of the uh, focuses, foci for our podcast is um, elevating the, the teacher profession so that teachers can use these high-quality materials to actually teach um, and, and how incredible the space is that we're working in right now to be able to do that. So that's a really good point, Melissa. Uh, I'm curious still about the research because I, I know that was a really uh, key point of interest when we did our pre-call is that, you know, we're like, what's, what's the research on all of this writing stuff that you're doing? And you're like, we use knowledge building research. And that I think is just makes you all very special that you used that research. So tell us all about um, your evidence-based practice. I can talk about that a little bit, and then Diana, you can talk about it a little bit more. I think I think several things that we discovered. First of all, was that there was not a lot of research about teaching writing. There, there was a little, and there was there was more that was sort of indirectly that w- that we used indirectly. So I would say one of those was is now very old is the Vygotsky research, which goes way way back, way way back, on the importance of oral language to name to to build understanding. And we that confirmed what we were seeing. We we weren't we weren't doing it because we had done the research. We were do, we were trying things out to see what would work, and then went back to, into the research to say why is this working? And that was a piece of it was the Vygotsky um, theory and and research on the the huge importance and power of adequate oral language because we were seeing that very same thing as well. The other piece, another piece of research that I think confirmed what we were seeing about structure, and you mentioned the painted essay, which is a key example of that, not the only one, but a key one, a really key one, um, was, some re- was some research that um, Steve Graham, I think he was then at Vanderbilt, I'm not sure where he is now, um, did on structures, the, the value of structures in writing. And he had, and he was talking not just about whole essay structures, but smaller, like paragraph structures, different types of structures. And he did some research, um, which really confirmed the value of that in terms of helping kids to write. And that was that confirmed what we were seeing that that, that value of structure. So those two things I think were, were were pretty important. A third one, which is a little more indirect, was from the National Research Council, and that that was um, pretty old now, two thousand. And I looked recently to see if they've updated it, and that's still kind of a gold standard bit of research that the National Research Council did. And that's really on, on what it takes for kids to internalize, um, to be able to go, what you were sort of talking about, Melissa, they can do it in within a classroom, but maybe can't apply it to in a 
in an assessment situation for a variety of reasons. And they did research on what it takes to the factors that need to be in place, one, one of which is practice <laughs> um, for kids to be able to internalize. So I think those three things, those three pieces of, or chunks of research helped us understand why what we were doing seemed to be working so well. Can you add to that, Diana? Yeah, I think what we're seeing now is a lot of more recent <clears throat> research on knowledge building. Right. And that feeds right into our premise that, you know, we need to put a high emphasis on understanding. So work that's been done by um, Gina Cervetti, for example, that shows that when you are teaching, when kids are working with um, sets of texts that are conceptually coherent, um, that reading comprehension increases, writing ability in increases, vocabulary increases, um, and students' ability to approach new tasks, new literacy tasks, um, also goes up. So it's transferable. Um, that whole emphasis, and I think that's one of the reasons why we were able to jump in with both feet um, once states started having new standards um, because we had in, in some sense already done a lot of this work and, and stumbled on it ourselves. Um, you know, early on um, when states started adopting statewide standards, um, we, people were trying to figure out instructionally, what would this look like? And interestingly enough, we felt like we knew exactly what it would look like um, because we had been doing it for a long time. And sure enough, when we started, um, you know, doing things like submitting our lessons to be, you know, to be juried um, and things like that, um, they won immediate approval. Um, and that was, and they were very old lessons. They were lessons we had been doing for, for 10 years, um, you know, and so we feel like we've had a lot of experience in ideas that are now more newly becoming popular. Yeah, I think that's pretty key. When we started, I was just, I just have the copy of this book right here, and I just looked up about the National Writing Project stuff, which was from 2006. They're at that time, the most recent when we wrote this. And they were kind of walking up to saying, wow, knowledge really matters, never quite nailing that it matters. That nailing came later. And it was, it's an interesting process because we were sort of discovering it in our own work. That longest war piece that I told you about was seminal. I've often thought, thank you for that child who wrote that piece because it was such a seminal piece of our own understanding. Um, and people had been kind of intimating it or kind of recognizing it, only sort of recognizing it before that. So it took kind of naming it, I would say, which is what's happened since in the, just even in the last, I want to say, Cervetti wrote maybe five years ago, Diana? Yeah, um, 2016 or so. Yeah, it's something like that, right? Which so in and the knowledge gap and things like that have been much more recent. Hirsch wrote. Hirsch was the person who wrote about knowledge for the longest, and his and his writing about the importance of knowledge goes way way back. But his wasn't about knowledge and writing. His was really about knowledge and reading understanding. So we had to kind of connect some of those dots. I would say to say, if you're going to write about what you read then how do we help you to read? And that, and, that, and that sort of all came of a piece in connecting dots in terms of reading, knowledge, and writing. And it's interesting. I think one of the reasons why we don't have a lot of research on writing instruction, um, I was realizing that it's really only been a little bit more than a decade that there has been an acknowledgement that we can even define what effective writing might look like. 
Um, so that that in and of itself was a new idea, um, you know, that we really grappled with in Vermont. Um, and so if you look back at the history of research, people had trouble even saying, what would it look like if, if kids were successful here? Um, so that makes it even harder to design a research project. And so we're seeing some of that now. We did, we did one small project ourselves. Also, these projects are just, you know, really difficult to, to organize and get a lot of data on. Um, we did one uh, research project for writing for understanding. Um, back a while ago, probably about 15 years ago when we were And that was with help from the state. That we, yeah. we, we were, that was when the state had a much more supportive um, network for making all those things happen than it was able to have later because the whole funding mechanism changed. Yeah, we were, you know, we were developing the approach and we wanted, you know, a little bit of data to, to validate what we were seeing. Um, so we paired with um, a place called Vermont Institutes, which at that time was a support, a nonprofit supportive agency um, working with the state of Vermont. And they went into classrooms, um, fourth and eighth grade classrooms, and trained teachers in the writing for understanding approach. We picked fourth and eighth grade because that's where our standard, our statewide writing tests were given. And we, it was a very small sample, but we saw a really really important effect. Um, so we, we did it in 14 different classrooms for a year um, and compared the statewide scores of the, those students in those classrooms the year before and then after the writing for understanding instruction. All but one um, showed a significant increase in the number of students who were proficient. But what was more exciting to us was that in the classrooms where students her began um, as the least efficient and proficient in writing, um, we saw the biggest gains. So there were three classrooms in particular where students, um, you know, 20% or fewer of the students were proficient on the state test in writing. And we saw gains of the smallest gain we saw was 10% and the largest gain we saw was 65% um, more students achieving proficiency on the subsequent state test. And, you know, to, to this day, that has been our, our goal, our focus. You know, what can we do for those students who we struggle to reach? And for us, you know, that very small study, at least with some validation that we were able to, to reach students um, that, you know, that really needed us. That's amazing. I'm so happy that you're like that you connected that that you thought to connect that research <laughs> to writing, even though the, I'm happy that you didn't get discouraged and say there wasn't a lot of writing, you know, research out there. So um, you turned to that knowledge building research and, and were able to draw connections out from there. Um, one of the things that one of you shared in our pre-call is that the more you write about worthy texts, the more you're required to really intimately know that text, the more likely you are able to read other complex texts. Um, And that just really stood out to me. And I want to just briefly talk about the idea that a lot of kids are still being asked to write about topics that are disconnected to texts 
And um, if we could just chat briefly about that, because obviously it's so important and it really is an equity issue, right? In order to have the kids write about the, the same topic. Melissa, I know you want to say something right now. You just, you just reminded me of something I just heard yesterday, which is not new, but just that, you know, being a better reader helps you become a better writer, right? Being able to read whatever it is, you become a better writer, but the write, the act of the writing and being able to, you know, put in words, your understanding of that helps you become a better reader for the next time you read something. And so I just like thinking about it like that, the, you know, they go hand in hand. It's not one or the other. They do. And an odd thing that happened to us when we first started using this writing approach, our principals started getting calls from other schools. And the principals were asking, what are you doing in your school in reading? Because your reading scores are so high. And it turned out, I mean, when you looked across our school and reading, there was no coherent approach. Everybody was doing their own thing, uh, looked different in every classroom. Um, but we concluded that it was the fact that we had this unified writing approach that pushed kids into complex text and a lot, pushed kids a lot. a lot and often and with meaning um, that, that drove up our reading scores. So yeah. I agree with you, Melissa. I love that. I love that you weren't afraid of the complex texts either. You know, you, you had a mighty team. <laughs> when, when, the complex, when the term complex text entered the vernacular, which was about the time of the standards, the common core standards, we realized that that was something that was, they were naming something that we had been doing for quite some time by that time. So that didn't feel scary. If anything, that felt validating, I, mm-hmm. I would say, in our, in our own personal experience, that we've been doing that. Yeah, you need, I mean, I think you need to know a lot about a topic to write about it, have that deep understanding. And what you mentioned, I, I wrote down verbatim what y'all were saying in our pre-call. <laughs> you both said you can't stop at what kids already know. Teachers need to take responsibility to build knowledge and a shared understanding. And writing is a powerful way of working with the knowledge. And Joey, you said a coherent chunk of knowledge. Yes, right, right. And I think we have seen that over and over and over again empirically in our own school, our own classrooms, and all the classrooms we've been working with. And that is really, I would venture to say, what Great Minds is built on. You're saying when, when, when curriculum like Great Minds are created, they're saying we are, we are naming a, co- a imp- worthy, first of all, worthy knowledge base. It's worth knowing something about this. It already has legs in that it, can, it links to other knowledge bases. So it's, wor- it's worthy in a whole bunch of ways. And when we, when we build our language arts, our reading and writing curriculum around that, so it's intentional, that pays off great dividends, not only for that particular piece of writing, for that particular unit, but for the next one and the next one. Because knowledge, that's what, that, what schema theory tells us about reading understanding, and this isn't, new, this isn't new information, this is old information, is that that's what we do when we build schema. You, building schema involves starting somewhere and adding to it and tweaking it and flexing it and in increasing it and deepening that knowledge base. When that knowledge base is intentionally created as worthy and significant, that whole schema building is far more likely to happen than if we don't do that, than if we do tomatoes today and dinosaurs tomorrow, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I talk a lot about my daughter and her, and her experience because I feel like I've gotten a lens this year into school. Um, 
and you know, before as a parent, I had just trusted and I shouldn't have, um, she's doing a lot of that, you know, honeybees today and tomorrow it's, it's, I I don't, dinosaurs. And then the next day it's dragons. And then the next day it's someone who went to the moon. And that that (laughs) comes from, I don't mean to interrupt you, but that honestly, (laughs) been in school and teachers long enough can remember where the, much of the writing of the reading curriculum was individualized and skills-based. So you were, you were literally practicing a purple card, which had a little teeny piece of writing on it. And then a question about the main idea or a yellow card, which had a little piece of text on it. And you were reading about sort of prediction or something like that. And it's not that those things were bad. It's just that they took you down the wrong direction. There was no intentional knowledge building there. So that the kids who, the kids who were getting their knowledge built in other ways, because they were already strong readers and they had families who took them to museums and that sort of thing, um, were not being hurt by that. They weren't being hurt by that. But for kids who didn't have that, they weren't getting the opportunity to build a worthy knowledge base of any kind. And those kids get hurt by that kind of thing. Yeah. And what the, what the writing does in addition to helping students or encouraging teachers to help students build the knowledge base is it helps them to process that knowledge and turn that knowledge into understanding. And so there's a huge misunderstanding, I think, among many teachers about structure and the role of structure in teaching writing. The, The importance of structure is that those structures push students to make sense of their thinking. They push them to to synthesize. Mm -hmm. And so the the structures that we use are also, and the models, are a way of building schema for writing. So you're building your conceptual schema of the knowledge, um, but you're also building a schema that helps you understand how do we process information and how do we communicate that information. And the structures and the models that we use help students to do both of those things, to turn knowledge into understanding. Yeah. And that's really hugely important and speaks to, first of all, the incredible need and strength of teaching structures to kids. Also hints at the limitations. If you teach only structure, if you think that structure is going to be the be all and end all, if I can only get the right graphic organizer, I'm home free. (laughs) And and there it's tempting. It's tempting to think that for all kinds of reasons. Um, But if we fall into that little trap, kids can end up thinking, I need to fill that box and that box and that box and that box. And that isn't coherent meaning. And in fact, our little longest war piece that I was referring to was sort of like that. I mean, that kid had a sense of structure, had acquired a sense of structure somehow to write that piece, but had no meaning Mm -hmm. or, or the wrong meaning. I mean, it had meaning. She had, she had, or the child had used the structure to get at the wrong meaning because of not having paid it. Nobody had helped that child. And this was not anybody's bad intention. It was, it was the state of the art at that time. Nobody had helped that child to build enough understanding that the structure could then serve to help with the meaning as opposed to almost get in the way. Yeah. One of the reasons why the painted essay works as a structure is that the colors show the relationship 
between the thinking that goes on. It's not just first you do this, then you do that. Um, you know, we have, you know, blue and yellow, which make green. So your points, your blue and yellow points make your green focus or thesis. Um, so in the process of teaching students the colors, you're also, you know, very directly teaching them that the thoughts that you put into this writing are related to each other in really important ways. And of course, you need to know what that relationship is before you go to write it down. That's and the right. teacher needs to understand that. That's, that's a part of, of um, sort of professional learning that's important for teachers to have, the relationship between the structure and the meaning. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think we're, we're very guilty of often like looking at a rubric or standards isolated and, and yes, they can do this thing or that thing. But like you all said, like seeing the true purpose of writing and that it's about being able to process and share meaning. And I, I don't know that we always bring it all together like that. And people know that as soon as you say that, like in a, in a large group of people or a small group of people, people nod, of course, of right. course we know that. <laughs> it's just that we haven't named it well enough or often enough for people so that we don't yet have, many of us do not yet have enough tracks in our heads for that to be an automatic. Yep. Yeah. Like we've tried to deconstruct it so much through a rubric yeah. or that we lose that big intention meaning. Right. right. Yeah. Cause we're trying to piece it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that piecing it is helpful. We need to do that. We just need to not be limited by that. Mm-hmm. I wrote down um, podcast number two with the Vermont writing collaborative. <laughs> <laughs> to be determined. We're going to continue our conversation on this one. I want to, I want to know so much more about this. I could talk about, I could he- listen to you talk about this for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> we could probably talk about it for another hour. <laughs> I bet we could. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious in the Vermont writing collaborative space, cause you both have been just, you know, pivotal members of that team and just so like lucky to have that, that be at the right time place at the right time and be a part of that. What, what were you most proud of or what are you most proud of that came out of that? And I know I didn't prepare you for this question. I just thought of it. So I'm sorry. You know, when you say that, Lori, you know, what comes to my head, lots of little individual student faces. Um, That's all I can think of. I I, I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm most proud of our, our success with, with students. And in my head, those are particular students who, who come into mind, you know, and, and what we were able to, to give those students. I would say that too. And I wouldn't, I would even not use the word proud. I'd tweak it to say grateful. I, I, I find myself feeling very grateful for the opportunity to learn how to help kids who most need help. And without sacrificing our strong kids, because I think we have always kept that in the forefront as well. But um, I, when I think about the many, many specific faces, like all the stories I could have told you, and then there's this kid, and then there's that kid, and, there's that kid, and I think we were able to help. We were really able to help, and that feels good. Yeah. All right. Are we still asking for some advice, Lori? We are. <laughs> All right, so we always wrap up our podcast by asking our guests to give a piece of advice to our listeners. So to teachers, school leaders, whoever you have the best advice for, maybe everybody. (laughs) 
Uh, one piece of advice, two pieces of advice. One is work with a text that matters, that, that you care about kids working with. Work with a text that matters if you're designing something for yourself. That, I think that's hugely important. A second piece is show kids what you want. Show, show kids models. Um, not just mentor text, although they can be helpful, but an actual model, like I'm going to write something a whole lot like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't even talked about models very much today, but that's a, that is a key piece of, we've often said, if we said to, if we've often said to teachers, if there's one thing you need to remember it's about writing, it's show kids a model. If there's one thing, show them a model. So I guess I would say, remember that. And if you, if you don't know how to write one yourself, figure out a way to get some help so somebody can help you with it because that's that's very helpful for kids with writing. Mm-hmm. Diana, what about you? Yeah, I would agree with everything you said, Joey. And I would maybe add to that, um, that I would encourage people to just go out and try one. Um, you can you can hit our website. We've got free lesson plans there. SAP has some. You know they're embedded in lots of curriculum that's out there already. But what we've found over the years is that it may seem daunting, and, and there may in fact be you know many reasons why you'd be hesitant to do this. But once teachers do this and they see what happens in their classrooms and they see the change in their kids, they, they read the writing. Um, very few teachers are willing to go back. Um, you know, that that's what convinces people um, mm-hmm. to use this type of writing approach is, is seeing the effect that it has on their students, on, on children. So I would advise people to, to go out and give it a try. I like that. Diana, one of the very first hallmarks that we noticed in Baltimore, or I noticed at least as a coach, and I know that um, I've noticed this in other districts as well that I've, I've worked with through Great Minds, is that's the first thing that teachers say literally just after a, a, a month of implementing wit and wisdom is, wow, my students are able to write like they've never been able to write before. And I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, that is a, the, the, a great hallmark to notice. And then let's think about why. About. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they have something to write about. They've got the knowledge. They, they've got the structure, everything you just just you know, mentioned um, in those pillars. They've got the structures, they're using them. They've, they've talked about things a lot. Um, they're able to come full circle in that articulation in their writing, so. And, and that feeling is really, really a wonderful feeling. Um, you know, people often say, you know, there's so much instruction, there's so much planning, there's so much design. Doesn't that take the joy out of writing? And and actually, no, it puts the joy back in, um, you know, when students are able to write and write successfully and comfortably and, and easily um, in many cases, that that's where the joy comes in. And certainly, you know, it makes teachers, you know, excited to see that as well. Yeah, it really, it even resonates with me as an adult. I remember being in high school and, you know, being asked to write papers about Topics that I didn't know enough about. And I, once we learned all of this research about knowledge building and how it connects to writing, I remember like one of my aha moments at some point in time was thinking of myself as a high schooler and thinking, wow, when I sat down to write that paper, nothing flew out of your brain into your fingertips because you didn't have anything to write about. Like I didn't have enough knowledge to 
to write about, uh, to write more than probably a paragraph. And so a, a three to five page paper was very daunting because I couldn't write about it. <laughs> I didn't have anything to say. Um, you know, and so I, I it's just, it, it seems very uh, organic and natural <laughs> that, that that would make a lot of sense that we have a lot to write about. Um, but I think every adult could probably reflect and, and that would resonate with them as well. <laughs> Absolutely. I have a little piece I can just read to you sort of about that. This is from the book that I do it. Yes. Read aloud. And um, it's called writing as a set. It's this little chunk that says writing as a set of transfer skills. Several years ago, when we had begun to be highly intentional about writing for understanding instruction with our elementary and middle school students, we happened to run into one of our former students, now a ninth grader in high school. She had been a motivated, strong student. So when we asked her how high school was going, we were taken aback by her answer. She frowned. Well, she said, I just had to write a history paper, kind of what you were just talking about, that was hard. At first, I couldn't really do it. This was distressing to hear. Why not, we asked her, what didn't you know how to do? Oh, I knew how, she replied without hesitation. I just didn't know enough. I didn't like understand the stuff. So I had to do that first. Then I could write it okay. Good, we said. Good for you. We could not have asked for more. Great. <laughs> yeah. So she went back and did her own. Uh, she could recognize <laughs> know enough and she knew what to do about that. Yeah. Oh, that's so amazing. I think that that's a fantastic way to end. You <laughs> sharing that story about the ninth grader. And also we'll plug your book for you. <laughs> right we have a new book coming out actually Ooh. oh plug it go ahead go ahead yeah. tell us. <laughs> it's called well the title is still a little bit up in the air but right now it's called making it work um and it's a handbook that is to accompany um our previous book or can be used by itself and it's really a we think of it as a little bit more of a practical guide um mm-hmm. than our original book and we're very excited about it it's 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 being designed right now so we expect it to be out fairly soon Oh, we're very excited about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, congratulations. Well, we hope it's, we, we are very hopeful that it will be useful. Well, we will use it for sure. <laughs> You've got two, two, uh, two buyers right here. <laughs> we'll send you copies. <laughs> autographed. <laughs> I don't know about the autograph, but we'll definitely send you copies. <laughs> Do you think we're um, in Baltimore on writing for understanding for teachers? And so that would be perfect for them. <laughs> well, great. We'll let you know. It's, it, won't, it shouldn't be too long. Excellent. Uh, well, you know what? We'll have to podcast again and write and release it when your book comes out. That sounds great. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so this will be the teaser. Everybody can buy book one and then be all prepared for when book two releases. Uh, right. well, Good enough. Thank you both so much for taking time out of your busy book writing schedules and, and working schedules and just your everyday life to, to podcast with us. We're very appreciative and we're so grateful that we finally got to talk about writing and focus on it in the way that we had hoped Right, Melissa? Absolutely. It was great. Well, it was our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Have a wonderful rest of your days. You too. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.